Good morning. Our message today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 21. I'll be starting with verse 27. We pick up the story of the Apostle Paul as he returns from his journeys around the Mediterranean, goes back to Jerusalem, which was ground zero for the Christian faith. But it was also the center of hostility towards Paul and the other leaders of the early church. Paul knows it's dangerous for him to return, but he believes God has called him to go there regardless of the danger. So let me read starting with verse 27. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately shut the gates. When they, uh, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, Get rid of him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you, do you speak Greek? The commander replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent... He said to them in Aramaic, and this goes into chapter 22 now. He says to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. May God add his blessing and understanding to the reading of his holy word. So how are you doing? How have you been doing this week? What's life been like for you? What struggles are you facing? What emotions have you been feeling? I got my forehead scanned, my temperature taken a couple of times this week. You know, that's one of the standard precautions to help to spread the, the COVID uh, virus. Well, taking your spiritual temper, taking your emotional temperature, that's a good thing to do each week as well. To set aside some time to reflect on like what is going on inside of you as you deal with the pressures and the stresses of, of this weird season that we are all in? What are you feeling? And where is your faith in all this? I have two pastor friends who both went to their doctors this week with stress and anxiety-related illnesses. Their bodies are sending them a message about the load that they're carrying, and they need to pay attention to that. I mean, I practically uh, wore out my computer this week trying to get an appointment for the vaccine. You know, no luck. 
It was so frustrating, unbelievably frustrating. And that frustration can bleed over onto other relationships, other situations that have nothing to do with the botched vaccine uh, rollout. So be sure and take some time and reflect on what's going on in your body, your emotions, your mind, and your soul. You know, I've had a few people even say to me that they feel like they're being persecuted. That it feels as though that the universe is singling them out for some reason, and they're getting an extra dose of frustration or extra problems, maybe because, maybe because they're Christian. Like Satan has them in his crosshairs and is really putting the pressure on them more so than on others. And that bothered me just a little, just a little bit because of two things. First, I don't necessarily think there are greater pressures being put on Christians than on other people right now. I mean, you might point out the restrictions on gathering for worship, but that isn't directed just at churches. Other religious groups, other businesses, sports activities, venues, they've all been impacted in the exact same way. So we are not being singled out in some special way because we're Christian. I mean, it's not good. It is hurting us. Our giving has taken a nosedive, and that's a problem, let me tell you. But it's directly tied to us not being able to gather as a church as we wish we could. But I don't see that as persecution. I don't think we have anything unique to complain about. We're going through the same hardships as everyone else. And secondly, I think it devalues the word persecution. You know, when we use it to describe the minor inconveniences we're experiencing, you know, wearing a mask in public, I think the things we're going through don't really rise to the level of persecution. And when we overuse a word, well, it's like uh, that story, you know, one of Aesop's fables about the boy who cries wolf just to see the people in his village go into panic mode and the people eventually grow tired of his false alarms and they just tune him out and so when a real wolf shows up no one listens. There is real persecution against Christians happening in our world. Last Sunday in the West African nation of Burkina Faso, Father Rodrigo Sanon was kidnapped by Islamic jihadists and his bullet-ridden body was later found that day in the woods. There's been an increasing jihadist activity and presence throughout Burkano Fasa, and more than one million people have been displaced from their homes. I mean, that's real persecution. It's like ISIS all over again. Last Sunday in Iran, 15 Christians were arrested by the Revolutionary Guard for meeting as a house church. They were accused, and I quote, of actions against the national security, and that they were part of a Zionist Christian conspiracy, all because they were having a home Bible study. Now, six senior United Nations human rights experts have accused Iran of systematic persecution against Christians as people are literally just snatched off the streets, beat up, imprisoned without any due process. That's real persecution. A Newsweek article from a couple of years ago reports that persecution of Christians is really on the rise in countries like China, Egypt, Eritrea, India, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, and Turkey. It led one analyst to say that Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than at any time in history. The organization Open Doors, which is a ministry that tracks religious persecution around the globe, states that in the year 2020, over 340 million Christians were living in places where they experienced high levels of persecution. 2,983 Christians were killed for simply being Christian. 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 
3,711 believers were detained, arrested, imprisoned without trial. Now that's real persecution. And closer to home, again, last Sunday morning, 4.30 a.m., a bomb went off outside the First Works Baptist Church in El Monte, California. No one was hurt, but the church building and surrounding buildings were damaged by the blast. You may not have seen this story. I don't think any of the major news networks decided to cover it, possibly because the church is ultra-conservative and is known for its extreme fundamentalist views on a lot of social issues, and so it's a frequent target of progressive protesters, and obscene messages are often spray-painted on the church. Now, personally, I don't support the extreme rhetoric, the beliefs, or the tone of this church, but no church should be bombed. No church, no synagogue, no temple, no mosque, no house of worship of any kind should ever be bombed or receive threats of violence of any kind anywhere in the world, much less in Southern California. So persecution of Christians is real. And persecution of Christians is not new. In fact, Jesus told his disciples to expect opposition and persecution. He frequently talked about it. John 15, 18, for example, Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Jesus said it, and the Apostle Paul lived it. But the important thing for us this morning is not the persecution itself, but how Paul responded to it. Paul's response, in a sense, points people to the uncontestable reality of Christ in his life. And that's what we need to learn how to do in all our circumstances, whatever our situation we're in, to use it as an opportunity to display the reality of Christ in our lives as the one who makes all the difference in our lives. Now, Paul's particular situation it's not one we're likely to face. He's in Jerusalem. His enemies recognize him, incite a riot against him. He's attacked by a mob, dragged out of the temple, so he can't claim any kind of safe sanctuary there. They couldn't beat him up in the temple. But now the street thugs are using his head as their pinata. A Roman SWAT team has to rush in and rescue him before he's literally torn limb from limb. And in the Roman world, there was uh, no due process for Jews, no human rights. So the soldiers figure that since so many people were mad at him, uh, Paul must have done something wrong. And so the Roman way was to torture a person first and decide later what charges would be brought against them. So Paul is bound with chains, led away, and as they reach the steps into the military garrison, the, the mob is just like hot on their heels. And then Paul speaks to the captain of the guard for the very first time. And the captain is amazed to hear the accents of cultured Greek coming from a man bruised and bloodied by this lynch mob in this backwater town in the Roman Empire. Verse 37 says, do you speak Greek? You know, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? I mean, you talk about a case of mistaken identity, poor Paul. A few years earlier in AD 54, there had been a revolutionary leader from Egypt who organized a group of assassins. They hid daggers under their cloaks and attacked isolated Roman soldiers. Uh, when they tried a full-scale revolt, they were brutally crushed by the Romans, but the leader escaped, and rumors circulated that the leader had actually sold out his own men in return for his freedom. And the Roman captor kind of assumed only that kind of a traitor could rouse the anger of the people of Jerusalem to the level that he witnessed. Now, Paul convinces him that, no, I'm not that guy. 
and asks if he can address the mob. I mean, you'd think he'd just want to get out of there as fast as possible, but that's just not Paul's personality. Paul was never afraid of the mob. He saw this as an opportunity to give evidence to the people. And he begins by speaking to them, not in Greek, but in their own vernacular language called Aramaic. And that gets their attention. In chapter 22, verse 1, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. I hope you'll go on and read chapter 22 on your own. I don't have time to parse it for us today. Paul's defense falls into three parts. In verses 3 through 5, he talks about his own Jewish heritage. In verses 6 through 16, he describes his own encounter with the risen Jesus Christ and the changes that that encounter brought into his life. Then in verses 17 through 21, he tells of the ministry or the mission that God entrusted to him. And these are the two evidences of real faith that I want to zero in on this morning. First, the evidence of a changed life. And second, the evidence of personal ministry. As he gives his testimony, Paul first establishes common ground with his accusers. He's got this impeccable religious pedigree. A Jew from Tarsus, a student of Gamaliel, a highly respected, well-known rabbi. Paul could even identify with their anger and their rage because he used to persecute the followers of Jesus. Read Acts chapter 9 for that background. Paul once had the same zeal to preserve the Old Testament law as his accusers. He once had the legal authority to drag Christians off to jail and even sentence them to death. But something changed all that. He goes on to tell that familiar story of how Jesus literally knocks some sense into him, knocks him off that horse on the Damascus road. Jesus appears to him in a vision and Paul's heart of stone just melts into a puddle before the glory of the risen Christ. He deeply re regrets, repents of the terrible evil that he's done and goes into an extended period of discipleship and training in his new faith. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, Paul reflects on his credentials. On a human level, he was more religious than anybody. But when he encountered the risen Christ, he realized that all these religious activities were meaningless if he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Paul writes, I now think that stuff is garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. Paul was no longer interested in religion, the human trappings, traditions, rituals, robes, candles, incense. No, he had a real experience of God through Jesus Christ that changed his entire outlook of life. And I think if Paul were here today, he'd say there is nothing more boring than churchianity. Churchianity, just going through the motions. It's just so dull. If there's no deep experience of the risen Christ in your heart, then all the bells and whistles of the church are just that. But a real encounter with Jesus can be the most exciting thing a person can ever experience. Paul's personal experience of Jesus changed him, changed his priorities, changed his behavior, changed everything. 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, he writes that even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out me on me abundantly in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that if God could love him, if God could love him, someone who, someone who blasphemed Jesus, if God could change him, someone who used to kill Christians, if God could reach him, someone who was the lowest of the low, God could change anybody. I mean, nobody is too far gone. No one. God can change any heart, anybody, even you and even me. Paul goes on to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners, and I was the worst of the bunch. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, 
Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. He was probably thinking of his own story when he wrote 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You see, it's impossible to be a Christian and not have changes in your life. Attitudes, behaviors, priorities, things have to change. It's a sad commentary when Christians act no differently than the rest of the world. If a person is still selfish and arrogant, insensitive, vulgar, cruel, racist, unforgiving, if there are no changes in a person's life because of their faith in Christ, you have to wonder if they even know Christ at all. Now, these changes don't all happen at once. Some changes God can bring right away, a sudden release from guilt, a sense of forgiveness, a new love for God, a new appreciation for people, an addiction that disappears. But other changes can take some time, even a lifetime. But you can look back and you can see how God has been at work molding and shaping your personality. This is what we call sanctification, or the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It has a definite beginning when we put our faith in Christ, but it doesn't end until we meet him face to face. Sanctification is that lifelong process of growing closer to Christ, becoming more and more like him. A changed life is perhaps the most dramatic evidence that God is real. But personal testimony it's an ongoing thing. It's not just how I came to know Christ when I was nine years old at Vacation Bible School. It's also what has God done in your life lately? Is there some way God is at work in your life right now? What did God do in your life this past week? Where is there evidence of God's work in your life now? Like the daily supply of manna God used to feed the Israelites with in the wilderness, faith goes stale very quickly. We can't live off of yesterday's experiences. What is the experience of Christ today? So what is your personal testimony? Is there evidence of a changed life in you? What changes is Christ working on right now? What rough edges is Christ making smooth? Remember Pastor Tim Keller's great line, the gospel says come as you are, but not stay as you are. The gospel says come as you are, but not stay as you are. One of the great truth of scripture is that it's possible to change. I can be more than what I am right now. You can be more than what you are right now. You don't have to be enslaved to past failures, to your upbringing, your environment, your heredity. You can change, not by your own power, but the Spirit of Christ in you gives the ability to change character, your nature, your life. And so we live a life of hope and constant growth, continuing to grow. The best, most convincing evidence of Christ in your life is your changed life. The second evidence of a real faith in Christ is the evidence of personal ministry. You can't keep this kind of love to yourself. This kind of changed life has to spill over onto others. There's a natural overflow. The two are inseparable. In James 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a person claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such a faith save them? And the rhetorical answer is no. These are strong words. James goes on to say that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without deeds is useless. Faith must be put to work in practical ways. And so the Bible teaches that every follower of Jesus is called to some type of ministry, not just the professionals. Perhaps we need to re redefine the word ministry. My definition is sort of this. Ministry is anything that you do for the love of Jesus. Anything that you do intentionally 
for the love of Jesus, that's a ministry. There are formal and informal kinds of ministry. I mean, Paul was a preacher, a teacher. His specific ministry was to take the message of Jesus to the non-Jewish world. And that's an example of a formal ministry. He received a special call from the Lord. He had a title, apostle. He was commissioned, sent out by the church. But not everybody is called or equipped to do that kind of formal ministry. Yet we are all called to some kind of ministry. We're all working for the kingdom to touch the lives of other people in small or large ways. I was impressed pre-COVID, and I know because of COVID, all the COVID protocols, uh, it's making a lot of things impossible these days. But I was impressed by a retired woman in our church who leads a Bible study in a local nursing home. Nobody asked her to do it. It's not an official program. She saw a need, saw it as, a, as an opportunity for the Lord, and she took it. Another woman I know, a retired teacher, tutors a, at a program for children run by an inner city church. She's doing that for the love of Jesus. There's a man in our congregation who tutors or tutored for an adult literacy program. It's through a secular agency, but it can still be a ministry if it's done out of the love of Jesus. There are lots of hidden ways to serve God. In fact, anything you do that serves other people can be a ministry when you are intentional about doing it for the love of Jesus. Let me say that again, and you can tweet this, okay? Anything you do that serves other people can be a ministry when you are intentional about doing it for the love of Jesus. It can be something as simply as cutting an elderly neighbor's lawn or taking a meal to a family, having a medical crisis, or calling up a friend who is hurting and really listening, serving on a committee at your local school, praying for your children, volunteering as a coach, running a business, working in an office, working retail. It can be anything as long as you do it for the love of Jesus. Intentionally doing it for the love of Jesus, that's what turns the ordinary activities of life into ministry. Now, there are lots of people in ministry in our church pre-COVID. Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, choir members, musicians, elders, deacons, small group leaders. I have one caution for those of you who have been involved in some formal ministry. Sometimes you can lose track of why you're doing what you're doing. You volunteered, you had high expectations, but the time pressures are heavy. It's not as fun or fulfilling as it once was. Now it's an obligation. Some people lose the love for Jesus that was once the motivating factor in their ministry. And if your ministry is done as an obligation, that's not a ministry anymore. Just go into a lot of meetings that just doesn't cut it. Your work becomes a chore, a thankless task, and you're setting yourself up for burnout and feelings of resentment towards God, but also resentment towards the church. Here's an important thing. If Christ isn't in it, don't do it. If Christ isn't in it for you, don't do it. You're really not helping the church or yourself in the long run. One goal we should all set for when the pandemic is over and we return to some new form of church life is to rekindle that love for Jesus and ask him to direct us to forms of ministry where we can serve him. Now, probably none of us will ever be formally put on trial for being a Christian. We'll never have to face a judge or a jury, never have to stand in front of an angry crowd. Yet in a profound sense, we're all on trial every day. We are all on trial every day. People are watching. People are watching. The judge and the jury are those people whom we encounter in our homes, our families, our schools, our offices, our community, our neighborhoods. Do they see the evidence of a real relationship with Christ in you? 
Do they see the evidence of a ministry for Christ in you? Do they see a difference? What's the verdict for you? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his example for us and how to face up to opposition and persecution, but also, Lord, how to frame and give testimony to the evidence of faith that he has in his life, the evidence of change that's taken place, but also the evidence of the calling that he has received to minister for you, Lord. Help us to really grasp those two things in our own lives, Lord. What changes is the Holy Spirit making in us? What ministry are we each individually called to, intentionally doing it out of the love for Jesus? Help us to see that this week, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.